G'day there, welcome to another episode of Game Club, the podcast that's an excuse for us to talk about awesome video games, much like a book club. I'm your host Dan, and today I'm bringing you a very special PAX Australia episode. This weekend was PAX, if you didn't know, and it was great fun. I got to wander the show floor, teach Dungeons and Dragons in the Diversity Lounge, and of course speak to today's guest. You may notice Catherine and Charles couldn't join me for this episode, and I knew I had to get someone incredible to talk to to make up the difference. And we're going to speak with Ryan Pearson, or Rhapsody as he's known on the internet. He's an Aussie YouTuber who plays a ton of indie games and brings a special kind of flair to his videos. Not only does he create an incredible amount of content, he's got a style that stands out and cuts through the noise of other gaming channels on YouTube. He was kind enough to spare some time over the PAX weekend to discuss how he got started and the journey of growth he's gone through as a creator. And of course, in true Game Club style, we're going to talk about which indie games he likes and why. So sit back and relax, or keep wandering around the convention floor, flowing with the crowds, as we talk with Rhapsody. Now, you're a YouTube creator, verbiage debater, and indie game annihilator. Mm-hmm. Um, but before YouTube, what was the thing that you worked on? Uh, it, it, customer service which uh, is completely at odds with my public persona of being an incredibly anxious, insular kind of introverted person. Uh, But it was probably something that helped me kind of find a way to get into a voice just to deal with a situation uh, at hand in particular. And so did you go to uni, study, things like that? So you did customer service. Is that front, like, customer facing or was it over the phone? Customer facing, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Like, uh, effectively uh, representative of an area in, like, a big box market kind of thing. Uh, Don't want to say which. (laughs) Talk crap about them all the time. (laughs) Um, I still got my green vest from working at Woolies, so. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, Yeah, uh, we were in the same family. Oh, yeah. Uh, Yeah, no. uh, (laughs) Sorry, I forgot the question. (laughs) Um, so uni, like, what was it? What, yes. what was your what was your path gonna be, right? Like, is don't well, most kids don't wake up and go like, oh, I'm gonna be a YouTube creator. It wasn't a thing yeah. when I was a kid. It wasn't like a, a viable opportunity, at, at least in this current style of let's play and streaming. Uh, no, I, I was a stof- software engineering student for a very long period of time, and that was gonna be my gateway into biomedical engineering, uh, and I was gonna be creating bionics. So, like, that schooling and degree, is that now useless? <laughs> Extremely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, I have, uh, I've mentioned this a couple times before, but I, I have uh, a couple courses left. I've got my capstone course, but before that, I've got a six-month full-time internship that I have to do. So, effectively, at some point, I had to decide, am I going to continue the last tiny leg of this degree and get the paper, or am I going to continue trying to make YouTube a thing? Uh, because YouTube can't wait. It's kind of got a momentum. It's like a rolling start. Uh, whereas I can delay and defer for a year or two for university. Is that a tough conversation to have with a partner or um, like, oh, hey, I'm going to stop doing the uni thing mm-hmm. or like your parents even to go, like, hey, I'm going to put that on hold because this other thing I'm doing, I'm good at it and I want to do more. My partner's also creative. Uh, he does a lot of stuff in the intersection of like queer communities and Dungeons and Dragons communities, which happened to be uh, a startling revelation when you mentioned you were going to be in the diversity lounge doing D&D. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if you've heard of Dungeons and Drag Queers, he's doing a show uh, tomorrow night, I believe. Oh, beautiful. <laughs> yeah. 
so he's extremely kind with it, is is very, very supportive. So why am I talking to you? I should be talking to him. You really should. I can go get him. Because <laughs> yeah. um, uh, well, my, my next question was, you know, what skills uh, transferred across from mm. any of you? But that, that kind of feels like none of that now. A, a little bit. Probably a little bit, uh, kind of like a semi-analytical mindset and like a, an interest in min-maxing. Like especially when you're doing software engineering degrees, they also get like a lot of management involved in that and tech management in particular. Uh, so you end up doing a lot of things that talk about uh, minimizing risk, maximizing profit, maximizing reward in particular, and like like general equations that you can run with rough numbers to try and figure out, okay, what's the expected result of these kinds of things? Not to mention all of the math courses as well, uh, which, you know, some may contend I've forgotten. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, I just am reminded now, going back to the, the question about um, partners, parents, things like that. I tried to speak with my partner about like, oh, hey, I'm going to be a stay-at-home Dan, not a stay-at-home dad, just a stay-at-home Dan. And she was not happy about that at all in the slightest. So you mentioned like some of the skills you've, you can use, especially like I would, I would imagine the indie games that, that you do play, uh, were you saying minimize risk, maximize reward? Yeah. Uh, I mean, you, you do play a lot of um, roguelikes and things like that. Can you talk me through like some, your, your game choice and, and what the kind of games you play and why you decided to go down that route? Sure. Uh, part of it is a stylistic impression left over from one of the people that inspired me to start, Northern Line, mm -hmm. uh, who was covering a large amount of roguelikes at the time. Also platformers and a couple, uh, couple other card games mixed into his. But uh, in particular, the roguelikes, uh, roguelikes were really interesting because they offered a format for YouTube Let's Plays that is infinitely repeatable and yet consistently entertaining and different and well varied. I mean, because the roguelike itself is about playing the same game as many times as you possibly can with a bunch of different random permutations that arise through, uh, it, it gives you infinite variation. You can have trillions of different runs in the same game. Uh, and then furthermore, on top of that, it, it fits into my play style because games like that, I really enjoy tearing into them and then finding, okay, so roguelikes are largely random. They're pseudo random, but they're random. Uh, how do you take a randomized system and make it consistent? How do you consistently streak in a game that could just give you the worst items consistently? Uh, specifically that is what got me into, okay, roguelikes are really interesting, and then just branching out from there into the rest of the kind of genre. Because I came across your stuff through the Slay the Spire. Um, someone had bought me Slay the Spire. I was like, oh, I'm going to check out a video on it or whatever. And I saw you had quite a deep catalog of these indie games. There's been an explosion of indie games, especially the roguelite genre. Um, what are your maybe top three, top five? That, I mean, is that, that might be a tough question. Uh, top three, top five of the indie roguelikes? Ooh. Uh, recently or of all time? Plug what you're playing now, if you really Why well, I, I could, but I, I don't necessarily want to. Okay, so Slay the Spire is definitely. Do, I, do they have to be ordered? Yeah. Okay, uh, so I'll go for three. Off. Slay the Spire, yeah. definitely. Uh, I mean, it would be uh, biting the hand that feeds. They're not included in the list, frankly. Uh, Darkest Dungeon, as well, because it was actually like innovative in a way that you can currently see the impacts of in the industry. If you saw Warsaw or Iridus Lord of the Dead recently, both of those build themselves as, this is Darkest Dungeon, but different. Yeah, yeah. 
And you can see that a lot with uh, games that kind of like break the mold in a really interesting way, like the new emerging Souls-like genre. Mm -hmm. And obviously there are so many card games and roguelike card games in particular that are currently inspired by Slay the Spire. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the, the foundation that it provided for a bunch of other games. I don't necessarily think mechanically it's a perfect game, but thematically, aesthetically, and the mood, uh, ludonarrative is its strength. The, the way that it orchestrates your feelings through playing it. You feel bad when a character dies. You feel awful and crushed, but that makes you feel so much better when they get stressed and resolve check virtuous. Um, the f so when you go on a journey with them kind of thing, you're like, oh, I really need you to pull through this check. Oh, they yes. do, yes. I, I was actually recently, because someone had commented on a video and I, I read all of the comments and it was a comment with a timestamp of, oh my God, I could feel that. And I was like, okay, what are you talking about? And it was the final moment in uh, Hell is in the Heart, which is the final mission in Darkest Dungeon, yep. story campaign at least. Uh, and it was where a character of mine resolved virtuous. If they had have resolved uh, afflicted, I actually would have just completely lost the campaign at that point. And it was like a hundred episodes deep at the time. Uh, so I, I was listening to it and I could hear the kind of like visceral joy as well as like triumphant nature of, yes, yes, this thing worked, especially because I'd planned around it as well. That's coming back to kind of trying to mitigate the negative effects of RNG and Roglex. Um, the third, <laughs> sorry. No, 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 absolutely, keep going. Uh, the third. Ooh. I do not know. It might be it might be Into the Breach uh, uh, from the same developers as FTL. Uh, it didn't have the same replayability as FTL, but when it was on, as in when you were locked into the gameplay loop, it was incredible. You felt like a, like a chess god, or what I imagine a chess god would feel like. I'm garbage at that game. There's something about, especially these roguelikes, that make you feel smart for popping off, right? Like you you go, oh, I've set this up, as you said, you planned around a particular outcome. And these roguelikes, I mean, all of, all of those pieces are there for you to fit together, but it's you that ends up putting the, them together. And you feel amazing when you're in that zone, right? Um, is, is there anything else that, that draws you to that, that kind of genre? You mentioned it's obviously good for a content creator perspective. Mm. Uh, as you said, infinite replayability. You're not just finishing a storyline and then going, oh, we need to move to a new game, hope the audience joins me. Um, and this aspect of it, are those the, the two pillars that kind of bring you back to the genre or is there anything else? No, as an individual player, I get brought back to the genre because something that I like to do with the game is like go extremely deep on one game. So I used to do that back with single players and you know, kind of like PS1, PS2 genre, uh, genres, sorry, era. Uh, would, would play through a bunch of single player games multiple times over. Like, okay, what are all of the different things that I could have done? Okay, so which of these paths is the optimal one that I could be taking? Kind of like pseudo speedrunning. I didn't really know what speedrunning was at the time, yeah. uh, but that kind of like wanting to get into the mechanical depth of a game, or at least the, uh, the, the gameplay depth. I don't really love reading a whole list of numbers. Mm but I like gathering enough experience that I have a good sense of the game. And a lot of games just aren't built for that. 
and roguelikes exclusively are. So it's a genre where like, even if I wasn't creating, you know, Slay the Spire content in particular, I still would have played, you know, over 2000 hours of the game. It's the exact type of thing that I used to do with other games. Uh, you, you pointed it out, uh, or no, not pointed out, but it's, it's come up in this conversation we've just been having. Uh, and I hinted to it at the start saying a verbiage debater, uh, you're very verbose, um, which I think comes with the, the territory of being a YouTube creator. But you are also very conscious about how pronunciations um, and and the way you speak, you are obviously very clear. Whereas a lot of Australians, you could say are very, oh, how's it going? You know, they drop the G's and things like that. Is that a learned thing or is that something you always did? Yeah, mate, see that kind of thing is learns. Um, it's very much an affectation that I kind of lost over time. Uh, part of trying to enunciate is trying to make sure that I'm heard as clearly as possible. And let's be honest, the Australian accent isn't particularly excellent for that. Uh, also part of it is I, I wasn't really incredibly social as a child. So I grew up watching British sitcoms mainly. That was like the largest social context I got. Uh, so I picked up a lot of affectations from that. And then especially when that blended with my late teens, pretentious kind of era, it was like, yeah, you know what? I'm just swapping accent. <laughs> and you do, you do do accents occasionally uh, in some of your games, you read out text and things like that. A lot of the indie games don't have uh, voice acting per se, but you obviously provide it for your readers. Mm. Readers? Viewers. I have readers. Um, <laughs> uh, is that something that you have a deep well of, of voices to go to, or is it more just like, oh, I'm just gonna try a, a couple, I've got a couple of a key ones that I can work off. I've, I've probably got about 10 to 15 key ones I can work off of, but especially for a series where they like consistently introduce new characters, like Dicey Dungeon had this, uh, this effect for me. Uh, I'd exhausted all of my voices. So at that point I was just like, ah, just spin a table. Uh, all right, this is going to be awful, but I'm going to try and do it. And then it would probably just merge back into one of the voices I'm already familiar with. Yeah. Um, and this leads on to my next question about, uh, and we, we touched on this uh, in our communication beforehand. Uh, I've heard you talk about a patter that you have uh, or that you've been working on your patter in general. So we, we've already established you didn't have a ton of skills to bring over from the, the uni and stuff like that. What are the new skills you've had to develop, like creating a patter uh, for a YouTube channel? My voice. I... Uh, this is going to be an awful audio experience, uh, so I do apologize. But the way that I used to speak used to be pretty much exactly like this. Like, I, I just, what is, because I wasn't very social. Uh, so the fact that I can actually speak is largely due to the fact that I sat down for like six hours a day and spoke into a camera, or rather into a microphone at the time. Uh, you can hear in a lot of the earlier episodes, my Australian accent is much more present, uh, but also my voice is a lot weaker and a lot less uh, capable of displaying dynamic tone. Expressive, less expressive. Because when, when I heard you talk about patter in general, it's like, oh, okay, I'm, I'm talking, but you're not, you, have, you don't really have anything prepared. Like it's not, it's not like a magician or a, a showman who would pre-write their material because you're reacting to things on the fly. Yeah, and those kinds of things do mean that you kind of have to have uh, phrases that you can rely on things that are just stored in your brain that's like, okay, this is what I'm gonna say while I'm trying to think of the next thing or while I'm considering this decision, right? So a lot of those kinds of things will be jokes that are consistently told, that the joke is they are consistently told or similar ways of expressing a point, like discussing a card or reading out a relic or something like that. Those kinds of things just automatically happen in my brain and I'm like, cool, I'm thinking about the next thing that I have to say at this point, but my motor mouth is just going off and saying, 
And some of the jokes, uh, I, I guess, for your repeat audience would be uh, almost Easter eggs or something you can you can return to. Um, what are some of the highlights that have developed because the community has latched onto a thing and gone, we want more of that? Okay, the the thing that they latched onto the most, uh, and probably the most iconic example of this, is the singing bowl, uh, which is a relic in Slater Spire that I just liked. I just thought it was really good, uh, largely in part because it allowed you to turn down cards for a benefit, and I don't like putting that many cards in my deck, so it would just become a giant benefit for me. Uh, so my original plan was to never mention it, but every single time the singing bowl turned up, instead of reading out the relic text or reading out the relic name, I would just sing a song. Uh, that lasted about three episodes, after which it just became like increased excitedness that I'd found the singing bowl, and I just started ramping it up gradually. And as soon as people noticed that I was ramping it up gradually, I was like, cool, I'm ramping it up way further. So it, it would become kind of like the most bombastic, enthusiastic, emphatic kind of part of any episode. After which someone made a compilation of all of the different times that it had occurred in the series up until that point, which was extremely well edited and extremely flattering to see as well. Uh, which, funny story aside, uh, a couple of my friends didn't actually know that this is what I do professionally. Uh, so they learned after being linked that video. So walking into a group of your friends that you're like, cool, I'm just about to have a very chill social conversation and they're yelling singing bowl at you is a very confronting experience. <laughs> I bet. I can't imagine it, but I, I bet. So continuing on, you mentioned that uh, your community or someone from your your viewership had put together this compilation. Yes. Uh, an amazing thing for them to do obviously means you have huge fans. Um, I've heard you refer to them as the Rap Public or the Republic. Um, uh, how did it go? How did that kind of kick off and how did you build a community? Uh, how did the Republic kick off? The Republic is probably like a very, very old thing because I, I had my username as Rhapsody for a long period of time. It was my kind of gamer handle. Uh, so I had that for a long period of time and I think there was just a joke thread in a clan that I used to be part of that was like, this is uh, everyone would claim their own name and then some form of government, yep. right? I think at the time I went with Raptatorship but I've since decided to go with a Republic. Uh, it fits much better. Uh, building a community largely just came with having a, a large enough group of people watching that I could say, hey, if you want to like hang out and talk with other people and about Slay the Spire and stuff like that, you can come and join this Discord. And eventually it got the ball rolling in a way that was, uh, it's, it's nice. I can drop in at any time and just be like, oh, hey, that's cool. There's conversation going on. I'm just going to drop in here and then peace out immediately after. You mentioned one of your influences was Northern Lion. Um, and I've seen references to, if not um, the same kind of ethos as like the McElroy brothers of this sort of always positivity sort of thing. And that seems to be in your community as well. There's not a lot of not a lot of flame and things like that for a YouTube comments section. Um, was that an early decision or was it just part of your personality where you were like, oh no, I'm just super positive? That was late. That was really, really late. So one of the things that I wanted to do with the channel initially was like Northern Lion, as I mentioned, is an inspiration, but so is Day9. And Day9 had that same kind of like McElroy ethos that you're talking about of like trying to be consistently positive, trying to build up trying to punch across and up rather than down. Those kinds of like general good ideas as far as I'm concerned. Uh, so I, I took a lot of that from day nine in the, like, in the initial instance of the, the channel. 
but really doubled down on it. I think about two years in when someone messaged me and said, hey, I watched these videos with my son and their son was eight years old. And it, it was a largely flattering and kind message, uh, but it also did include, is there any way you could swear a little less? Because especially near the start of my channel, I would swear like an Australian does, yeah. like a fish drinks, yeah. right? Like consistently. Uh, and I completely cut that that day. I just straight up stopped because it wasn't helping me. And in a large amount, it became a lexical crutch. It became something that I would rely on rather than having a more colorful explanation of the thing at hand. And I figure, what's the use of having a diction if you don't use any, a diction, two different words, uh, if you don't use any of them? I'm dressed as Klaus. I mean, you're, yeah, yeah. it could easily be misconstrued. Uh, and that and that sort of ties into what we we're talking about before you being very verbose and a verbiage debater. I think I put it. Um, you're always trying to find a new way to phrase a thing, and that that does seem very fresh in a, a world of content where it it does feel very samey a lot of the time when you're cruising around. What am I going to watch this afternoon? Uh, you're hearing the same kind of thing over and over again. Like, um, what's up, guys? It's your boy. Whatever. Um, whereas you bring a bit of a different flavor to that table. Yeah, it's, a large amount of that is because before I made anything, I watched a whole lot of everything. And there's nothing more boring than the same thing consistently, as you're mentioning. Uh, but also, I think, like, even just in individual sentence fragments, I try not to use the same word twice in any single sentence which is largely that same affectation of something is funnier and more interesting if it hits the ear in a new way. And I try and do that with intros to episodes by changing my name for the intro to an episode or changing the intro or completely doing someone else's intro, uh, which has worked out to varying degrees. Uh, but it, the kind of, if the gameplay is gonna be different, the commentary should probably also be different every single episode, but also within contained to the single episode. And if you were to give advice, if you're at the point where you can give advice to other YouTubers, <laughs> is that something you, you would say to focus on or would there be more fundamental things that you think, oh, you know, you got to nail this part first before trying to focus on these other things? It entirely depends on style. There are, there are people who will do none of the things that I do and be excellent at the things that I refuse to do. For instance, I very, very, very rarely edit. Almost never unless something has horribly gone wrong, I don't edit. And largely that's, you know, wanting to release a very consistent schedule of a large amount of videos each day. It's not really something that you can do, but also it's something that I found is a stylistic thing for me. You have to fill the dead air. You don't have the ability to rely on, okay, well, I'll just edit this part out in post. You have to find ways to make the dull interesting in those moments. And usually that's through commentary. So similar to like a sports broadcaster at the cricket or something, like you've got to be able to come up with interesting stories and things like that to kind of, as you said, fill that dead air, but also make people want to stick around for the bits that will be, you know, more interesting later down the track. Definitely, definitely. And that's a huge stylistic difference. There are a large amount of people who will take, you know, a four hour stream of theirs and clip it up into, you know, two and a half minutes and it will be hilarious and excellent. And that's a completely different energy that I don't bring. Uh, it really depends on the style of content creator. I would say the only thing that I would stress is having a schedule and being extremely consistent. Because as soon as it becomes routine, 
you'll forget and then you'll be, you know, a year down the line and go, oh, I've done a thousand of these now, I guess. Wait, hang on, let me look back at the first one. I'm better than, I'm better than I was then, right? You can actually have like significant noticing of your own kind of milestones or significant recognition of your own milestones. I've heard similar things from writers who say like, assume your first hundred chapters are garbage yeah. and just like, just keep pumping one out a day or one out on a regular schedule. Uh, and so you would say it's similar to uh, YouTube content creation, like just get out, get it done and, and stick to a schedule and try and maintain it. Yeah, my first 2000 videos reached no one. First 2000. And now, and now you're reaching? Uh, it's, I think it's just under 30, uh, just over 39,000 subscribers at the moment. Uh, but for a channel my size, I punch pretty high in terms of my view count. And especially when I'm covering a game that like I'm a reasonably known name for, uh, it's something that gives me an extra boost. And especially with the watcher coming out recently for Slay the Spire, I've got a lot of that traction going at the moment. So what's, uh, you mentioned like new content coming out for games that you're uh, an icon for, um, or that, I don't know if that's, if that's too, uh, that, that, that phrase embarrasses you, uh, that you are known for or yeah. that your, your viewers know you for. Um, what is next for the rap brand, the, the, the Rhapsody uh, empire, the, mm -hmm. the rap public? Well, I'm obviously going to release a rap album. <laughs> I have to. <laughs> Frankly, with this name. Although I think there might be actually copyright infringement on that front. I'm almost certain there is a rapper in the US at the moment named Rhapsody because I get the tweets that are directed to her a lot. Would your album be The Singing Bowl or is that just one track? No, no, no. See, the thing is, after that became very well known and like it was established as a trend, I stopped doing it. Because then it doesn't interest me anymore and it becomes the same kind of repetitive nature of something. And also it, it would be something that I would have to put on at that point. Up until that point, I'm just playing a joke on the viewers. Like, is anyone recognizing that this is happening? And then as soon as it is, and as soon as people are waiting for it, it's like, well, now, now it's not fun. Well, you gotta, you gotta have a singing bowl track, but it's actually zero seconds long. Mm. And so it's in the track, it's in the set list and they're like, oh, the singing bowl track, they get to it and it's just nothing happens. I'm gonna have the final track have eight minutes of silence after it ends. And then the real singing bowl track ah. starts like those old hidden tracks. <laughs> That's brilliant. Um, I think uh, I've kind of taken up as much of your time as, as I really can. Apart from, oh, actually I, I do want to go on. What's the next thing apart from the rap the rap album, because I didn't get a real answer on. Is it just content creation, building building a, a a viewership and expanding from there? Or is there something beyond that that a YouTuber then does? Like, as you get bigger, do you then launch more merch? I, you already have merch, I believe. Is that? Yeah. So what what is the what is the next phase that you're that you're aiming for? I very, very rarely look into the future which is why unfortunately I have to give a joke answer for that one. Uh, and largely that's because I like anxiously always dwell in the past and the present of what has gone wrong and what can go wrong right now. I don't have time to worry about the future. Uh, so I, I would probably say that like breaching more into the streaming world is something that I'm interested in doing, especially when The Outer Worlds comes out. Uh, I'm planning on doing a stream week for that. Uh, last time I did a stream week, I knocked my voice out, which was a bad idea. Uh, so I'll, I'll be doing that again, streaming and knocking my voice out, both. And, and finally, uh, you've been here at PAX, it's only day one, um, but you maybe have a, had a chance to get around a little bit here. Is there anything you've either seen so far that's tickled your fancy or something that you're keen to sort of get an eye on while you're here over the weekend? 
there are two things that I saw on the floor almost instantly. Uh, the first is Ring of Pain. It looks like I did not get to talk to the actual main developer, so I cannot like give a list of genre keywords, but it looks like it's a card battler roguelike, which, I mean, I feel like I'm almost guaranteed to have to look at it. These, these kinds of games are getting a giant trend up recently, uh, as in like the amount of them that are coming out. Uh, and they're something that I've been interested in a long time. Like, I really, really like card games and I really like roguelikes. I'm so glad to see the genre of the combination of the two is taking off. Uh, so that, as well as the Fall Guys, the Devolver Digital kind of like semi-Battle Royale. I don't really enjoy Battle Royales myself, but it's actually an obstacle course, kind of like a wipeout. Mm-hmm. And a hundred players are running through the obstacle course at the same time. And the first, the final player to live not get knocked off the map, all those kinds of things. Not by other players, but by obstacles, wins. So like the Gladiator or those Japanese game shows where people have to try and run through. Yes, yeah. Very similar to Wipeout here in Australia or the US as well. Well, Ryan, Rhapsody, thank you very much for joining me on the Game Club podcast. Thank you very much for having me. G'day, it's Future Dan again. Wasn't that fun? Much thanks again to Ryan James Pearson, aka Rhapsody, for taking time out of his PAX day to sit down with us here at the Game Club Podcast. This might have been one of the most interesting interviews we've done at PAX over the years, getting a real insight into the world of a YouTube creator. Be sure to check out the footnotes because you'll find links to some of the games and channels we discussed. Of course, Rhapsody's YouTube channel. Uh, you can dive deep into a number of the games he's played. I'd certainly recommend some of the Slay the Spy videos. A really good jumping on point would be the videos from when the game officially launched. Rhapsody does a great job of explaining and reading each card when it comes up for the first time, so even if you haven't played the game before, you get a really good understanding of what it's about. Plus, I'm glad I got to learn about Dungeons and Drag Queers, uh, who put on a live show on Saturday night at PAX. It was a blast sitting in the audience and experiencing the game run by the charming Mr. Peak, where they had to, uh, well, it wasn't stop a wedding, but there's a wedding involved and it is quite interesting. Definitely worth a watch. Uh, Plus, they've got a podcast too, so check that link out in the show notes. We'll also link out to the games we mentioned. We've got Slay the Spire, of course, which is the deck building roguelike game developed by American studio Megacrypt. Uh, we mentioned Darkest Dungeon, um, developed by Red Hook Studios, and Into the Breach is the turn-based game developed by FTL creator Subset Games. So there's a lot to check out, and I hope you do so. And that's a wrap for your Game Club podcast today. I hope you enjoyed listening to a new style of episode. Uh, if you loved it, great. Uh, if not, let me know maybe on social media. Shoot me a DM or tweet at me at NFGDan. I also write more about video games over at nonfictiongaming.com, especially guides on the best way to optimize your D&D characters. Uh, I'll be back with some more Game Club podcast, hopefully sooner than two years break this time. Talk to you then. <laughs>